Good morning, church family. So good to be with you again today and hope you're all doing well, staying safe and healthy, and certainly we're glad that you have chosen to join us together today and to worship God together today. And I hope that you'll be uplifted and, and encouraged by being with us today. I don't know how many of you know the name Ernie Davis, uh, but back in 1961, he was on the cusp of greatness. As a running back for Syracuse University, he had just won the Heisman Trophy that previous year for being the best college football player in, in America that, that year. It's given out an award given out to the best college football player uh, each year. And on top of that, Davis was the first African-American to receive that award. And so quite an honor. Even more than that, he was selected number one overall in the NFL draft that following year and all signs pointed to Davis being the next big thing. But then in the summer of that following year, in the blink of an eye, everything changed. Davis was diagnosed with leukemia and despite treatments, he died less than a year later at the age of 23. Such a heartbreaking and, and tragic story but I was also thinking about how ironic it is that every time a college football player, professional football player steps out on that field, they, they run the risk of suffering a career-threatening injury, maybe even a life-threatening injury. They, they take all these violent hits and collisions on the outside of their body, and yet the thing that can do even more damage is what's going on on a microscopic level on the inside of their body. And I was thinking about that story and that reality in light of where we're going today. And the story we're going to be looking at today is we're continuing in our Going Viral series in which we're journeying through the book of Acts and examining what it looks like when the message of Jesus Christ goes viral. You know, there are times in Scripture when the, the body of, 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 well, when the church is, is described or, or compared to a body, a human body, like in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And there are times when any body of believers is going to face some kind of challenge. Sometimes the challenges will come from the external around them, working against the body of believers from the outside in, resisting it, seeking to impede its collective witness to Jesus in the world around them. And already in this series, we've seen how that can be the case as we looked at the story of Peter and John in Acts chapter 3 and 4 just a couple of weeks ago and how they were facing external persecution, even to the point of being thrown into prison for witnessing to others about Jesus Christ. And in fact, the same thing happens not only to Peter and John, but also to all the apostles in Acts chapter 5. But today we're going to look at the story of another kind of challenge that the body of believers face. And it's not a challenge that comes from the outside world against it, but rather the challenge is something that comes from the inside, something that's internal and at work within the body of believers. And challenges like these can be just as life-threatening and just as witness-threatening to the body. In this case, it was the growing infection of disunity and favoritism. And so let's pick up the story in Acts chapter 6, Picking up in verse 1. In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. 
So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group. And so they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. They also chose Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these man, men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread and the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapid, rapidly and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. When we arrive in Acts chapter 6, by this point, the church in Jerusalem has grown to thousands. And as we've already seen in, in previous lessons, the message of Jesus was going viral, not only in Jerusalem itself, but even out into the surrounding neighborhoods and countryside and towns. And with thousands who had come to Christ had also come thousands of needs, particularly among the widows. And so as we saw over the last couple of weeks, one of the routines and practices of the church was that, that people within the church were selling their homes and their property and they were bringing 100% of the profits and they were laying the money at the apostles' feet, at the leaders' feet there in Jerusalem, in the church in Jerusalem. And the apostles were taking all of this money and they were distributing it to those who had need. And there was a segment of, of the people that had daily needs and these were a number of widows in the community. And every day there was a, a, a daily distribution of food to these widows that were a part of the church. But one type of widow within the church was, was being taken care of. That was the Hebrew widow. While another type of widow was being overlooked, the, the Hellenistic widow. So just a little crash course here. What's the difference in a Hellenistic widow and a Hebrew widow? Well, first let me, let me explain their uh, their, their commonalities. They were, they were all Jews and they were all Christians. Okay, so these were all Jewish Christians, but the Hellenistic Jews, Hellenistic widows and the Hebrew, Christians, Hebrew widows, they were all Jews and they were all Christians. They were all Jews who professed a belief in Jesus as the Savior and the Messiah. So I want to make sure that we have that in our minds, that there, there was commonality there. But the differences were also very stark uh, as well. The, 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 Hellenistic widows were basically widows who were Greek-speaking widows, and, and they were immigrants to Jerusalem. They were places from all over, places like Rome or Greece or Syria. Remember how we talked about a few lessons ago in Acts chapter 2, how all of these Jews had come to Jerusalem for Pentecost, and they come from all over. And so they come here, and when the Spirit of God descends on these believers and they're, they're filled with the Spirit, they begin speaking in all these different languages, right? Why did they need to speak in all these different languages? Because there were Jews from all over speaking all different kinds of languages, and many of these languages were these Hellenistic Jews, these Hellenistic widows who had come to Jerusalem. They were immigrants, immigrants to Jerusalem. Hebrew widows, on the other hand, were Jewish widows. They were born in Jerusalem. They lived in Jerusalem. This was their turf. Basically, in many ways, they were the insiders, and the, the Hellenistic widows were kind of like the outsiders. And so despite the fact that they had this common ground of all being Jewish Christians, there were some language barriers, and there were also some very distinct cultural barriers between these two 
groups. And so in the daily distribution of food, the Hellenistic widows, the Greek-speaking widows, were being overlooked. Now, we're not told how they were being overlooked and what ways they were being overlooked, but it's not difficult to, to kind of imagine some possibilities. There, there could have been some geographic issues like distance to Jerusalem uh, or from Jerusalem proper. Many of these Greek-speaking widows probably spent most of their resources getting to Jerusalem. They very may, very may well have left their, their families behind and, and so left a lot of their resources behind the, the families who supported them. And, and with such a growing population, after all, it's not just widows who are seeking to relocate to Jerusalem. It's many people who are seeking to relocate. But with the growing population, uh, property in Jerusalem were scarce. Uh, prices were undoubtedly high. And so these Widows may have been forced to move outside of Jerusalem proper, proper and into the surrounding neighborhoods and communities. And that the feeding tables were set up in Jerusalem proper. Maybe many of the Greek widows were, were just too far away. They lived too far away. And it's not like they had meals on wheels back then that could just go around and take them. And so maybe they were left out and being neglected in that way. There was also the possibility of of a language barrier and, and language barriers playing a part. You know, what if the announcements as to where and when the food was going to be distributed were written in Aramaic? The Greek-speaking widows didn't speak Aramaic, and so they would have been left in the dark as to where to eat. Whatever the, the reason for this neglect or this oversight, the pattern was noticed. And while the oversight doesn't seem to be intentional on the part of these native Hebrew Christians, complaints began to arise. And so the apostles, they call everyone together. They hold, call the whole church together. And they say it wouldn't be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Now, I want you to notice a couple of things here. First, they called the whole church together. Thousands of people together. Because this is a big deal to the apostles. Why is it a big deal to the apostles? Because caring for the poor and the needy among them was a big deal to God. If you were to take the Bible and you were to highlight all the verses that deal with helping the poor or having compassion for those in need or dealing with injustice or reaching out to, to those who have less than or to the oppressed, you would come across thousands of verses in the Bible that deal with those issues. And so this is a big deal. It's at the heart of of the message of the entire Bible from Genesis to Revelation. And the whole church has been called in on this situation because it's a big deal. Now, at this point in Acts, the New Testament hasn't been put together. They don't have the New Testament, but they do have the Old Testament. And the Old Testament is chock full of example after example and verse after verse of how, how much God cares about those in need and the compassion and how much he desires for his people to reach out to those in need and to show compassion to the poor and the neglected. And Jesus himself comes along, and he has so much to say about those things as well. And so when the apostles said this, I don't think it was meant to be disparaging to the idea of, quote-unquote, waiting on tables. It's not meant to downplay the importance of meeting the needs of the poor and the needy, specifically of the widows. This is not belittling the issue. In fact, look at what they say next. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men among you who are known to be two things, full of the Spirit. Not just, we're not just choosing anybody, but two, seven men who are, are known to be full of the Spirit and full of wisdom. We'll turn this responsibility over to them, and we'll give our attention to prayer 
and to the ministry of the word. So the apostles say, hey, look, we've got a problem. And we need people full of the spirit and full of wisdom to help handle this. This is an important issue. And by the way, it's not an easy fix. It's not an easy fix to, to, to take care of this problem. It's going to take people full of the spirit, full, full of God's spirit, and full of God's wisdom. Because it's one thing to meet the needs of a person, of one person. It's quite another if you're going to address a systemic problem that affects a whole lot of people. And by the way, the answers aren't nearly as easy as people think when it comes to those systemic problems. I think we, we, we would like to think we have these easy answers, but the, the answers aren't nearly as easy as people think. The point is, the apostles aren't blowing this off or, or treating this as a minor deal. It's going to take people full of the Spirit and full of wisdom to deal with this because caring for the poor and those in need is a big deal. Here's the second thing I want you to notice. As big of a deal as it is that the apostles call the whole church together, the apostles knew that the energy required to address this problem was going to take them off of their primary focus, which was to, to address the, the ministry of God, to, to, to be focused on the ministry of God, the word of God, and the prayer. And this is so important, I think, for us to take note of as the church today, because as much interest as there is, and as much passion as there is in the church today and among believers today, and there should be that energy and passion among believers today in the church today when it, should, when it comes to showing compassion and reaching out to those in need and helping those in need in a physical way, they aren't to be done at the expense or to neglect of sharing the word of God and prayer. You and I aren't fully helping people if we're caring for their needs without sharing with them the word of God and the message of Jesus Christ. We're called to be witnesses and we're called to speak the name of Jesus as well as to serve in the name of Jesus. Like I said a few weeks ago when we talked about the bread of life, if you're distributing bread, if you're, you're handing out physical needs to people, don't forget the bread of life. We're called to do both. And the leaders knew that they had to continue to apply, to apply their energy in this direction, the ministry of the word and to prayer, while trusting and empowering others to address this incredibly important issue. And so the apostles instruct the church to, to choose excuse me, seven men known to be full of the Spirit and full of wisdom. Those were the two requirements, or three, I guess, if you choose the, well, four, if you choose the men, I'm going to add them up here. But th those are the requirements. Seven men, full of the Spirit and full of wisdom. Those are the requirements. And yet, check this out. The names of all seven of these men that the church chooses are Greek names. They're all Greek-speaking men. And in particular, they chose a guy named Nicholas from Antioch who was a convert to Jerusalem. I mean, how, how can there be any other explanation than God has to be in this? Because the church recognized who better to represent and care for these Greek-speaking widows than other Greek-speaking people, than, than, than people of, of, their own, uh, of their own people. Who, who better to, to relate to them and understand what they need and how to better take care of their needs than other Greek-speaking people? Man, it's kind of like before you seek to help somebody, it's helpful to find out how they feel, 
what they're thinking, what their situation is, what they've been through. And sometimes somebody who's, who's been in their shoes can help inform you of how to better reach out to them. And so this is such an awesome picture because not only is this a multicultural church with people, Jewish Christians from, from all over, different nationalities, speaking different languages, not only is this a multicultural church, but now the leadership is multicultural. And instead of this becoming something that divides the church, it becomes something, some, it becomes something that unites the church all the more. And so these seven men are presented to the apostles and the apostles pray over them and and lay hands on them. And notice that the apostles never tell them exactly how to handle the problem. They don't micromanage. What mattered to the apostles is that these men chosen were full of the spirit and full of wisdom. And it was their role in the fullness of the spirit and in the fullness of wisdom to help facilitate the best course of action. And the results were viral. Verse 7, so the word of God spread. Apparently the problem was addressed because the word of God spread. And the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly. And a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. For the first time in Acts, you have a large number. You have priests, Jewish priests, becoming part of those who are believing in Jesus Christ and confessing them as their Lord and their Messiah. And notice, this doesn't happen after a miracle. It doesn't have to happen after a sermon is preached. When does it happen? It happens after the church works through this real-life problem within the church itself. It happens after the church faces an issue, faces a problem, and then works through it. Specifically, after the church figures out how to better care for a neglected segment of the poor and the needy among them. And the witness of the church in its unity and its compassion was so compelling that it moved droves of Jewish priests to confess Jesus as their Lord and their Messiah, who just a couple months earlier, they crucified him as a false Messiah in that same city. And it's not a miracle that does it, and it's not a sermon that does it, it's the church working through its internal issues. It's the church caring for the poor among them. And people had, decla- had heard Jesus being declared over and over in Jerusalem, but now they're seeing Jesus demonstrated right before their very eyes. And they can't help but follow him. Let me tell you what. There is incredible power in a church that's full of people who are different from one another learning to love one another and serve one another. There's so many things that we can draw from this passage, but I just want to give you a few things from this story when it comes to the message of Jesus going viral. First, when the message of Jesus is happening, when the message of Jesus is going viral in the life of a church, diversity is normal, or at least it should be. This whole story begins with the, this statement, the number of disciples was increasing. And this is not the first time that this idea or this, this event is happening, that the numbers of disciples has come up, that, 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 that Luke makes a note of that. They go from 120 in Acts chapter 1 to 3,000 in Acts chapter 2. 
And then they go from 3,000 in Acts chapter 2 to 4,000 in Acts chapter 4. And so the church is just exploding. But as growth happens, so does diversity of all kinds. You know why? Because the gospel of Jesus is for everyone. And in a church that's declaring and demonstrating Jesus Christ, it's only expected that because the gospel is for everyone, that there's going to be a little bit of everyone here. But with diversity also comes the great possibility that while we've got this growth and we've got things happening, that sometimes some will be overlooked. Which leads to a second thing we need to remember. When going viral is happening in the life of the church, frustration is likely. In any community, when you've got a group of people doing life together, the inevitable reality is that sometimes things and people are going to fall through the cracks. Because anytime you're dealing with sinful, fallible human beings, there's going to be some shortcomings. There's going to be some mistakes. There's going to be some things that happen. Things are sometimes going to get messy and messed up. Sometimes there's going to be some frustration. But I want you to notice a couple of things here. Notice first what the frustrated don't do, or at least it's not mentioned that they do this. They didn't threaten to start a new congregation. They didn't threaten to withhold their money and their giving. They didn't gossip or assume the worst of motives in the hearts of the leadership. They don't do any of those things. On the flip side, note the spirit of the leaders. They don't get defensive. They don't dismiss these complaints. In fact, in this case, they, they acknowledge the fact that it is a problem. They don't let things fester. They don't, they don't allow the, the problem to get bigger before they address it. And, and that's so convicting to me because I, I've got to be honest. There's been times as a leader when, when I haven't done right, where I've, I've gotten defensive, where I've dismissed the concerns from others where I've allowed things to fester before addressing them, before things got bigger than what they had to, to get. And people have been hurt because of it. And there have been times where as a husband and a father I've done those things. There's been times in other relationships in my life where I've done those things. But the apostles, the leaders here in Acts, they don't do those things. And this whole picture on both sides of this is just so convicting to me as, 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 a, as a preacher, as a leader, as a member of a church, both how those who are frustrated are responding to what's going on and, and how the, the leadership is responding to them and the problem at hand. This is such a powerful story because it gives you a glimpse into the life of the church. And let me tell you, just because the church in Acts may be growing and just because it may be filled with the Holy Spirit and just because things may be going viral, that doesn't mean it's a perfect church. Doesn't mean it's a perfect church and that everything is, is just going smoothly and there's smooth sailing everywhere. Remember what we talked about last week, that the, the church is distinguished, it's set apart not by its perfection, it's set apart by God's presence. That's why the grace of God is upon them, not because it's perfect, but because God's presence is there and it needs the grace of God upon them because it's not getting everything right. And so frustration is something that while it may not be something that we want to deal with, I think it's something that, that should be anticipated. 
And you know what else? We also shouldn't get so bent out of shape and discouraged when we encounter it for a season. I'm reminded of what Proverbs 14.4 says, where there are no oxen, the manger is clean. Or in other words, the stall is clean. In other words, if, if you want a clean stall, don't put any oxen in it. Make sure, you, make sure you keep the oxen far, far away from the stall. And if you want a clean church, make sure you don't have any people in it either. Because when human beings are involved, even when the work of God is being done, and human beings are involved, sometimes it's going to be messy. And because of that, it leads me to a third takeaway. Diversity is normal. Frustration is likely. And third, that means that change is necessary. One of the things that I've learned from, from those in the corporate world is that one of the struggles of any organization for those that are leading it one of, the, one of the struggles and the, and the pitfalls for any leaders in an organization is that sometimes those leaders, most of the time unconsciously, sometimes consciously, but, but a lot of the times unconsciously, will seek to maintain the status quo. You know, one of the things that, that I've heard a lot of people say during this time over these last couple months, and especially now as it's just weighed heavier on us the longer we've been through this, is I can't wait for things to get back to normal. Maybe you've said that same thing. And I, I, know what, I know what you mean when you say that. In fact, honestly, I've, I've said that as well. You know, but if our goal is simply to get back to normal, to simply to get back to what was, then I think we've missed an incredible opportunity as Christians. An incredible opportunity to grow in our faith, an incredible opportunity to grow in, in, in how we learn to trust and rely on our good and faithful God, an incredible opportunity for us to reach out and to share the, the good news, the peace, the joy, the love with those around us to a world who is hurting and struggling and searching for something more and an incredible opportunity for us as a church to not just go back to the same old, same old but to move forward and to grow in our relationship with God, to grow in our relationship with each other and to grow in our witness for Jesus Christ. Because our goal as a church is not simply to keep the status quo, but to find new ways to grow in our relationship with Jesus Christ, to find new ways to grow in our relationships with each other and to find new ways to grow in how we reach out to a lost world around us. And the apostles, they don't seek to maintain the status quo. Certainly with new blessings come new challenges, or as one preacher put it, with new levels come new devils. But the goal is not to maintain the norm. The goal is to pursue being more effective witnesses for Jesus Christ. And specifically, the goal of the church here in Acts was to, to pursue being more effective witnesses to Jesus Christ in two ways. First, they want to see to it that they put themselves in a position in the future to continue focusing on declaring the word of God and being given over to the ministry of prayer. And then second, they want to do this while helping the church to be in a better position to demonstrate Jesus through the overcoming of prejudice and through the caring of the poor and those in need among them. And so as the church grows... <clears throat> The reason they're making these changes is to put themselves in a better position 
to be, be focused on the ministry of, of the word of God and to prayer and to put the church in a better position to take care of those in need among them and to reach out to the needy around them. That's the reason why they're making those changes. And to me, that's so convicting and challenging because that ought to be the lens through which we evaluate everything that we do. And so as we move into the future, what is it that we need to change in order to preserve our focus on the ministry of God and the word of God and to prayer? And what is it that we need to change in order to better preserve and better care for those in need among us and around us? And I love how the story ends because the organizational changes that the church makes and that they embrace not only does it take care of the problem and not only does it allow the apostles to stay focused on the ministry of the word of God and to prayer, but it also begins to bear fruit. Because what do we find at the end of verse seven? The word of God spreads all the more and a large number of Jewish priests became obedient to the faith. What began as an obstacle and a test in the life of the church became an opportunity for a powerful witness through the church. And the results were unmistakably viral.